The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome in the name of Jesus this morning to all of you. And especially a resounding welcome to those of you who are visitors. Uh, We're really, really grateful that you have chosen to be with us here today. We've had a lot of visitors trickling in. And the Springs is a church that is being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And the way that we pursue that transformation is through three different rhythms. And so we gather around the Lordship of Jesus regularly to worship. And we grow into his image uh, through our connections groups, through our classes, through our fellowship with one another. And then we go, share his love in the world. Gather, grow, go. That is the rhythm that we participate in here at the Springs as we seek to be transformed. And so I wanna thank you for joining us in that gathering this morning as we gather to worship the triune God of love, and to have fellowship with one another today. Would you begin in prayer with me? Holy God, we give thanks this morning, as every morning, for your mercies. Lord, we praise you in all of your power and splendor and might. We praise you for all your truth and goodness and beauty and we give thanks for Jesus Christ God and I ask for the gift of preaching today and I ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit's illumination as you speak to us through your word we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ amen Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, 
do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. One of the most important thinkers of the 19th century was a Danish philosopher you've probably heard of called Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard was an existentialist philosopher. He was a prolific writer, and he was a Christian. But then again, everyone in Denmark in the 19th century was a Christian. And herein lies part of Kierkegaard's problem with the church. That everyone knew about Christianity and knew they were a Christian just as simply and easily as they knew what they had for breakfast that morning. That the state church had so much power and they'd established such an order that people claimed to be a Christian, but their lives had never really been changed by it. That the state church in Denmark of that day so faintly resembled that radical church of early Christianity, of Jesus Christ and his apostles. And so Kierkegaard critiqued this during his life, and and at one point he wrote this about the church in his day. He said, when Christianity came into the world, it was difficult to become a Christian. And one did not become preoccupied with understanding Christianity. Now, we have almost reached the parody that to become a Christian is nothing. But it is difficult and a very busy task to understand it. Does that sound familiar? I think we have a kinship with the Danish Christians of the 19th century, particularly here in the Bible Belt, that to become a Christian is nothing. But it is a difficult and very arduous task to learn how to understand it. As somebody who enjoys theology, those words certainly ring loudly in my ears. That for us, to be a Christian often seems to cost nothing at all. And have have our lives really been changed by that powerful, radical message of the gospel? And that's why I love the gospel of Luke. That's why I love the story of Jesus calling his disciples because it reminds us that indeed, it does cost something to actually be a Christian. Indeed, it does and should cost us, it costs the disciples everything to leave it all and to follow Jesus Christ. That's what we see in Luke and that's what we see in our text in chapter five this morning. So let's begin unpacking that together back in verse one, beginning there. It says, once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So lake of Gennesaret, that is the sea formerly known as Galilee. Same body of water. 
Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is down there, and we can see that his renown has continued to grow from Luke chapter 4, where we were last week, that the crowds are so multitudinous and so frenetic that they're pushing in on him at the water's edge. And so he's teaching, and he looks around, and he sees some boats on the shore. And so uh, we can probably infer that it's morning, it's at least daylight hours, because they fished the Sea of Galilee typically at night. It was easier to catch fish in the dark. And we know from history and archaeology that these boats were probably about 30 feet in length with kind of a smooth bottom in order to troll the shoreline as they fished. And so we see Jesus... He looks at these boats and says that he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. So I'm told that there are inlets around the Sea of Galilee uh, that create kind of these natural amphitheaters. And so Jesus goes out in with Simon Peter out into the boat far enough where they can still hear him because the sound is traveling well across the water. And he begins to teach. And don't you just wonder what Jesus taught the crowds that day? Maybe he said something like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Maybe he said, give to everyone who begs of you. Or perhaps he said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But whatever he said, I'm sure it was the gracious and powerful words that we saw in the gospel in chapter 4. And just feet away from Jesus as he is teaching in the boat sits Simon Peter. And Peter has this front row, not even front row, it's a backstage pass to Jesus' teaching. And he gets to look out and he sees the whole crowd on the shoreline and their faces just hanging intently on every word of Jesus. And he hears this Beautiful combination of authority and compassion in the voice of Jesus like he's never heard before. And so Luke tells us that when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. That's pretty amazing, the gumption of a local carpenter's son to tell a hard, world-weary fisherman how to do his job. And if you don't think that's bold, then I suggest you head to the nearest construction site, to the nearest oil field, and you begin to tell those people how to do their jobs. I suggest you head down to ODOT and you tell Phil Loafman how to pave a parking lot. I know that's not going to work out well for me. I'm, I'm going to get, okay, Mr. Preacher guy. Yeah, why don't you just uh, exegete me a parking lot? <laughs> but it's different with Jesus. You know, Luke has gone to great pains 
and great lengths to tell us of this incredible reputation that's been developing, these crowds that are gathering around him and highly esteeming him. And Jesus had that kind of effect on people everywhere he went. He had this inherent authority and kind of magnetism. And so Peter, we see this even in the word that he addresses Jesus with. He says, Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. That word for master is peculiar to Luke's gospel. He's the only gospel writer that favors it, and within the gospel, it's only used by Jesus' disciples. And so he he calls Jesus master, this term of authority, this term of of power and high social status. And so then he does put out the nets. He, He does put them out, and they catch a fish like they've never caught them before. The single greatest catch of fish that Galilee has certainly seen in a century, maybe ever, an incredible, divine, miraculous catch of fish. And what is Peter's response to it in verse 8? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter has probably just had the single greatest professional experience of his life. He has heard this incredible rabbi teaching with authority. He has caught a miraculous boat-sinking, net-breaking catch of fish. And his response is, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinful man. What am I missing here? Peter has this single greatest, incredible, truly divine, gracious experience, and and his reaction is to say, Jesus, leave my presence. I'm a sinful man. If that seems unintelligible or surprising to us, perhaps we are missing something. And perhaps what we're missing is this. God's grace judges. God's grace judges. Grace is not a love that tells us we have no shortcomings. Grace, by definition, is God's love for us in spite of our shortcomings. God's word is both judgment and grace at the very same time. God's resounding yes to you in love is a resounding no to everything in you that is not love. God's resounding yes 
in Jesus Christ is a resounding no at the same time to everything that is not like Christ. God's grace judges and his judgment is gracious. It is Jesus. And the presence of Jesus, as we see with Peter, can only expose all of our flaws, can only expose all of our sin in its worst light, can only expose all of our shortcomings and brokenness. And it's actually the presence of Jesus that really reveals the extent of this to us for the very first time. That sin is not something that we just discover on our own, but that Peter discovers really to this extent for the first time that he is sinful in the presence of a holy, loving, gracious Jesus. It is this encounter with the power and grace of Jesus Christ that opens us bare, shows us just how deeply flawed and sinful we are, and yet at the same time, how greatly saved we are. There's a T.S. Eliot play called The Cocktail Party, and the main character in that play is a psychiatrist who at one point says, half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. The endless struggle to think well of themselves. Isn't that precisely what besets us often today? We want to think well of ourselves and we want to justify ourselves on our own accord, by our own actions, rather than looking to the one who justifies. We want to downplay the direness of our situation. We want to spin the story of our sin. We want to think well of ourselves rather than thinking well of the one who makes us well. Rather than thinking well of the one who makes us well. The God whose grace judges. As one theologian writes, the holiness of God consists in the unity of his judgment and his grace. God is holy because his grace judges and his judgment is gracious. So how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to this confession from Peter in verse 10? Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. This is the fourth time in Luke's gospel in five chapters that we have heard the phrase, do not be afraid. The angel says it to Zechariah, the angel says it to Mary, the angels say it to the shepherds. And now Jesus tells Peter, I see you. I see your situation. 
do not be afraid. And not only does he say, do not be afraid, but he doesn't leave Peter where he is. He gives him a new calling, a new vocation. He says, Peter, no longer are you going to be catching fish. Now you're going to be catching people. Now you're going to be catching people for the kingdom of God. And how do Peter and James and John respond to Jesus? When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Over the last week of reading this passage, I couldn't help but think of Brett and Kelly Shrek. And especially Brett's part of their story, which I know some of you know, but Brett was a real estate broker, and he had worked hard for five years to finally be able to venture out on his own and start his own firm. And so he did, and he had great success with it. Well, it was at this time that Brett and Kelly traveled to Rwanda and adopted two young boys to join their family of them and their two girls. And they spent about five more weeks in Rwanda than they had planned. They were there about seven. They had planned on two. And they spent a lot of time with Christ's church in Kigali, Rwanda, a mission site of the Springs, a church plant in Rwanda. And they saw the needs in the country of Rwanda, and they saw the needs amongst the missionary team in the church and the great work that God was doing. And so they left Rwanda thinking, we could go back one day. We could potentially serve. We could do mission work in Rwanda one day. Now, Kelly's one day was closer to one day. And Brett's one day was one day far from now. Probably a second career long, long from now. You see, Brett had put in almost 10 years now of real estate expertise and experience. And not only if they left would he be throwing away that 10 years, he would be throwing away decades of future success, fortune, acclaim. But God spoke gently into the heart of Brett Shrek. And even as Brett felt inadequate, that he felt his expertise and experience and skills were in real estate, God showed him how he would equip and had equipped him for this task. And so Brett said, he, when he finally wrestled to the point where he decided he was gonna obey, he said, I, I told God I need it in writing. If I'm gonna take this huge step, I need it in writing. And the next morning, he woke up out of the blue to an email from Brian Hickson asking Kelly and Brett to join the missions team in Rwanda. And in his own words, Brett said this, the decision basically came down to what I had to give up. My business, living near family, living near good friends, our house, our church, our life, 
only by faith that God was going to be enough were we able to leave all that was familiar and comfortable and embark on this journey with him. You'll notice that both Brett and Peter were called to leave at probably precisely the moment of their greatest success. Brett's own burgeoning real estate business, Peter's single greatest catch of fish they'd ever seen, and it's right at that very moment that Jesus says, leave it, let it be. Now you're gonna catch people. I think it raises the question for us this morning. What worldly conception of success is Jesus calling you to leave? What worldly conception of stability, order, peace is the gracious judgment and word of Jesus Christ disrupting in your life? calling you to leave for him? What worldly path, professionally, financially, ethically, sexually, politically, what worldly path is Jesus calling you to leave behind at the shore to follow him and catch people? What worldly conception of the good life is Jesus calling you to leave behind in favor of death. The death of yourself and the death of every shiny security you cling to. Because Jesus isn't asking you to leave any more than he has already left for you. As that great hymn says, I left, I left it all for thee. Hast thou left aught? Have you left anything for me? Because Jesus says, I have left heaven. I've left my throne. I've emptied myself and put it all out on the cross for you. What will you leave to follow me? What will you leave to walk in the way of my gracious judgment, my no to everything that is not true and good and beautiful, and my yes to everything that is like me. Jesus is calling us. The holy God of love is calling you today to leave it all behind to follow him radically. I pray that you would. I pray you would as we stand and praise him together this morning.